Section 9 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 5 Ceremonies and Festivals. Part 1. We were very particular about attending all important ceremonies at La Ferté as we rarely went to church there except on great occasions we had our service regularly at the chateau every sunday morning all the servants except ours were protestants swiss generally and very respectable they looked all the women in black dresses and white caps when they assembled in hermes library sitting on cane chairs near the door some in fact most protestants in france attach enormous importance to having all their household protestant a friend of mine, a Protestant, having tea with me one day in Paris, was rather pleased with the bread or little croissants, and asked me where they came from. I said I didn't know, but would ask the butler. That rather surprised her. Then she said, Your baker, of course, is a Protestant. That I didn't know either, and, what was much worse in her eyes, I didn't care. She was quite distressed, gave me the address of an excellent Swiss Protestant baker, and begged me to sever all connections with the Catholic one at once. I asked her if she really thought dangerous papist ideas were kneaded in with the bread, but she would not listen to my mild persiflage, and went away rather anxious about my spiritual welfare. We went always to the church at La Ferté for the fate of Saint-Cécile, as the fanfare played in the church on that day. The fanfare was a very important body. Nearly all the prominent citizens of La Ferté who had any idea of music, were members. The butcher, the baker, the coiffure, etc. The mayor was president, and walked at the head of the procession when they filed into the church. I was president d'honneur, and always wore my badge, pinned conspicuously on my coat. It was a great day for the little town. Weeks before the fete, we used to hear all about it from the coiffure when he came to the chateau to shave the gentleman. He played the big drum, and thought the success of the whole thing depended on his performance. He proposed to bring his instrument one morning and play his part for us. We were very careful to be well dressed on that day, and discarded the short serge skirts we generally wore. All the Lafayette ladies, particularly the wives and sisters of the performers, put on their best clothes, and their feelings would have been hurt if we had not done the same. In fact, it was a little difficult to dress up to the occasion. The older women all had jet and lace on their dresses, with long trailing skirts, and the younger ones, even children, had wonderful hats with feathers, one or two long white ones. It was a pretty animated sight as we arrived. All along the road we had met bands of people hurrying on to the town. The children with clean faces and pinafores, the men with white shirts, and even the old grandmothers, their shawls on their shoulders and their turbans starched stiff, were hobbling along with their sticks, anxious to arrive. We heard sounds of music as we got to the church. The procession was evidently approaching. The big doors were wide open, a great many people already inside. We looked straight down the nave to the far end, where the high altar, all flowers and candles, made a bright spot of colour. Red draperies and banners were hanging from the columns, vases and wreaths of flowers at the foot of the statues of the saints, 
chairs and music stands in the chancel. We went at once to our places. The curé, with his choir boys in their little short white soutans, red petticoats and red shoes, was just coming out of the sacristy, and the procession was appearing at the bottom of the church. First came the mayor, in a dress coat and white cravat, the adjoint, and one of the municipal council just behind, then the banner, rather a heavy one, four men carried it. After that the pompiers, all in uniform, each man carrying his instrument, they didn't play as they came up the aisle, stopped their music at the door, but when they did begin, I don't know exactly at what moment of the mass, it was something appalling. The first piece was a military march, executed with all the artistic conviction and patriotic ardour of their young lungs. They were mostly young men. We were at the top of the church, very near the performers, and the first bursts of trumpets and bugles made one jump. They played several times. It didn't sound too badly at the elevation when they had chosen rather a soft, comparatively simple melody. The curé preached a very pretty short sermon, telling them about Saint-Cécile, the delicately nurtured young Roman who was not afraid to face martyrdom and death for the sake of her religion. The men listened most attentively and seemed much interested when he told them how he had seen in Rome the church of Saint-Cécile, built over the ruin of the saint's house, the sacristy just over her bathroom. I asked him how he could reconcile it to his conscience to speak of the melodious sounds that accompanied the prayers of the faithful, but he said one must look sometimes at the intention more than at the result. There was a certain harmony among the men when they were practising and preparing their music for the church, and as long as they held to coming and gave up their evenings to practising, instead of spending them in the wine-shops, we must do all we could to encourage them. The procession went out in the same order, halted at the church door, and then W. made them a nice little speech, saying he was pleased to see how numerous they were and how much improved. They would certainly take an honourable place in the concours de fanfare of the department. They escorted the mayor back to his house, playing their march, and wound up with a copious déjeuner at the Sauvage. Either the mayor or the adjoint always went to the banquet. W. gave the champagne, but abstained from the feast. They really did improve as they went on. They were able to get better instruments and were stimulated by rival fanfares in the neighbourhood. They were very anxious to come and play at the chateau and we promised they should whenever a fitting occasion should present itself. We had a visit from the Stahls one year. The Baron de Stahl was Russian ambassador in England and we had been colleagues there for many years. We asked the fanfare to come one Sunday afternoon while they were there. We had a little difficulty over the Russian national hymn, which they naturally wanted to play. The chef de fanfare came to see me one day, and we looked over the music together. I had it only for the piano, but I explained the tempo and repetitions to him, and he arranged it very well for his men. They made quite an imposing entrance. Half the population of La Ferté escorted them, all much excited by the idea of seeing the Russian ambassador and they were reinforced by the two villages they passed through. We waited for them in the gallery, doors and windows open. They played the spirited French march, Sambre et Muse, as they came up the avenue. It sounded quite fine in the open air. They halted and saluted quite in military style as soon as they came in front of the gallery. 
stopped their march and began immediately the Russian hymn, playing it very well. They were much applauded, we in the gallery giving the signal and their friends on the lawn joining in enthusiastically. They were a motley crowd, over a hundred, I should think, ranging from the municipal councillor of La Ferté in his high hat and black cloth Sunday coat, to the humpbacked daughter of the village carpenter and the idiot boy who lived in a cave on the road and frightened the children out of their wits by running out and making faces at them whenever they passed. They played three or four times. Then W called up one or two of the principal performers and presented them to the stars. Madame de Stahl spoke to them very prettily, thanked them for playing the Russian hymn, and said she would like to hear the sombre amuse again. That, of course, delighted them, and they marched off to the strains of their favourite tune. About halfway down the avenue we heard a few cries of Vive la Russie, and then came a burst of cheers. Our dinner was rather pleasant that evening. We had the prefet, M. Sublin, Senator of the Aisne, Jurisson, present ambassador to Washington, Madame Thénard of the Comédie Française, and several young people. Jurisson is always a brilliant talker, so easy, no pose of any kind, and Sublime was interesting, telling about all sorts of old customs in the country. Though we were so near Paris, hardly two hours by the express, the people had remained extraordinarily primitive. There were no manufacturing towns anywhere near us, nothing but big farms, forests, and small far-apart villages. The modern socialist radical ideas were penetrating very slowly into the heads of the people. They were quite content to be humble tillers of the soil, as their fathers had been before them. The men had worked all their lives on the farms, the women too, beginning quite young, taking care of cows and geese, picking beetroot, etc. What absolutely changed the men was the three years' military service, after knocking about in garrison towns, living with a great many people always, having all sorts of amusements easily at hand and at a certain independence, once the service of the day was over, they found the dull regular routine of the farm very irksome. In the summer it was well enough. Harvest time was gay, everyone in the fields. But in the short, cold winter days, with the frozen ground making all the work doubly hard, just enough food and no distraction of any kind but a pipe in the kitchen after supper, the young men grew terribly restive and discontented. Very few of them remain, and the old traditions handed down from father to son for three or four generations are disappearing. After dinner we had music and some charming recitations by Madame Thénard. Her first one was a comic monologue, which always had the wildest success in London, Je suis verve beginning it with a ringing peal of laughter which was curiously contagious. Everyone in the room joined in. I like her better in some of her serious things. When she said Le Bon Gite and Le Petit Clairon by Paul de Roulaide in her beautiful deep voice, I had a decided choke in my throat. We often had music at the chateau. Many of our artist friends came down, glad to have two or three days rest in the quiet old house, we had an amusing experience once with a young organist from La Ferté, almost turned his hair grey. He had taught himself entirely and managed his old organ very well. He had heard vaguely of Wagner, and we'd always promised him we would try and play some of his music with two pianos, eight hands. 
Four hands are really not enough for such complicated music. Mademoiselle Dubois, premier prix du conservatoire, a beautiful musician, was staying with us one year, and we arranged a concert for one evening, asking the organist to come to dinner. The poor man was rather terrified at dining at the chateau, had evidently taken great pains with his dress. A bright pink satin cravat was rather striking, and thanked the butler most gratefully every time he handed him a dish. Je vous remercie beaucoup, monsieur. We had our two grand pianos and were going to play the overture of Tannhauser, one of the simplest and most melodious of Wagner's compositions. The performers were Francis and I, Mademoiselle Dubois and the organist. It was a little difficult to arrange who he should play with. He was very nervous at the idea of playing with Mademoiselle Dubois, rather frightened of me and in absolute terror at the idea of playing before W. Finally it was decided that he and I should take the second piano, he playing the bass. It was really funny to see him. His eyes were fixed on the music, and he cantered audibly and breathlessly all the time, and I heard him muttering occasionally to himself, Non, ce n'est pas possible. Non, ce n'est pas cela. I must say that Valpurgis' night, for a person playing at sight, and unaccustomed to Wagner's music, is an ordeal. However, he acquitted himself extremely well, and we got through our performance triumphantly. But great drops of perspiration were on his forehead. Doubly was very nice to him, and Mademoiselle Dubois quite charming, encouraging him very much. Still, I don't think his evening at the chateau was one of unmixed pleasure, and I am sure he was glad to have that overture behind him. We saw our neighbours very rarely. Occasionally some men came to breakfast. The sous-prefet, one or two of the big farmers, or some local swells, who wanted to talk politics to W. One frequent visitor was an architect from Chateau Thierry, who had built W's farm. He was an enormous man, very stout and red, always attired in shiny black broadcloth. He was a very shrewd specimen, very well up in all that went on in the country, and very useful to W. He had a fine appetite, always tucking his napkin carefully under his chin when he sat down to table. He talked a great deal one day about his son, who had a good tenor voice, and had just got an engagement at the opera comique, said he would like us to hear him sing. Might he bring him some day to breakfast? He came back two or three weeks later with the young man, who was a great improvement upon his father. The Paris boulevards and the coulisses of the opera had quite modified the young provincial. He talked a good deal at table, was naturally much pleased to have got into the opera comique. As it is a teatro subventionné, government theatre, he considered himself a sort of official functionary. After breakfast he asked us if we would like to hear him sing, sat down to the piano, accompanying himself very simply and easily, and sang extremely well. I was much astonished, and Madame A was delighted, especially when he sang some old-fashioned songs from the Dame Blanche and the Domino Noir. The old father was enchanted, a broad smile on his face. He confided to W that he had hoped his son would walk in his footsteps and content himself with a modest position as an architect in the country. But after six months in Paris, where he had sent him to learn his profession, his ideas had completely changed, and he would not hear of vegetating in the country. We had, too, 
sometimes a doctor from one of the neighbouring villages. He had married an Englishwoman. They had a nice house and garden, and he often had English boys over in the summer to learn French. He brought them occasionally to us for tea and tennis, begging us not to speak English to them, but that was rather difficult with the English terms at tennis. Horses and dogs always spoken to in English. One could not speak French to a fox terrier bred in Oxfordshire. Another pretty, simple fate was the blessing of the flag given by Francis to the Pompier of Montigny, our little village in the woods just above the chateau. My husband had always promised them a flag, but he died before their society was formed. Three years after his death, when we were living in the small place which now belongs to my son, a deputation arrived from Montigny one Sunday afternoon to ask if Francis would give the flag his father had promised. This, of course, he was delighted to do. He knew all the men, and they all knew him, had seen him since he was a baby. All of them had worked in his father's woods, and two or three of the older ones had taken care of him and his gun when he first began to shoot. His father gave him a gun when he was twelve years old, had it made at Purdy's in London, a reduced model of his own. No one is allowed to shoot in France till he is sixteen years old, and then must have his permis de chasse, duly signed by the mayor. So it was rather difficult to get Francis and his gun into the woods. Once there, they were safe. Nothing would have induced him to let any of the men carry it. He walked beside the keeper with his gun over his shoulder, just like him. They did meet two gendarmes one day, and quickly the gun was given to someone else. I think the gendarmes quite realised the situation. Labby, the keeper, said they knew all about it, but they were friends of the family. W's appointment, probably, and asked no questions. It was necessary, of course, to consult the local authorities before deciding such an important question as the presentation of a flag to the pompiers. Francis went over two or three days later and interviewed the curé, the mayor and the schoolmaster, found out where the flag must be ordered in Paris, and decided the day a fortnight later, a Sunday, of course. The function was to consist of a service and sermon at the church, and a vin d'honneur offered by the pompiers at the Marie, which they hoped Madame Waddington would grace by her presence. The flag was duly ordered, sent direct to Montigny, and everything was ready on the appointed day. We had fine weather, a bright cold November afternoon, the country looked beautiful, all the trees red and yellow, a black line of pines in the middle of the woods, the long straggling village street, ending at the church on the top of the hill, was full of people, all the children in the middle of the road, their mothers dashing after them when they heard the horn of the auto. We were quite a large party, as the house was full, and we brought all our guests with us, including an American cousin he was much interested in the local festivities. The pompiers were drawn up in the courtyard of the Marie, their beautiful new flag well to the front. Almost all were in uniform, and those who had not yet been able to get one wore a clean white shirt and the pompiers' red belt. There was a cheer and a broad smile on all their faces when we drove up. Francis got out, as he was to head the procession with the mayor and the curé. We went on to the church, and stationed ourselves on the steps of the infant school to see the cortege arrive. It was quite a pretty sight as it wound up the hill, 
first the banner of blue silk with gold cords which was held proudly aloft by two tall young fellows then francis walking between the curie and the mayor the pompiers immediately behind them then the municipal council the usual escort of children that always turn out on such occasions bringing up the rear we let the procession pass into the church and then took our places a front pew was reserved for the family but francis and i sat on two armchairs inside the chancel just behind the pompiers the fine old church which is rather large for such a small village was crowded they told me many people had come from the neighbouring hamlets the montigny people had done their best to beautify their church there are a few plants and flowers and some banners and draperies church property which always figured upon any great occasion they told us with pride that the schoolmaster had arranged the music i suppose the poor man did what he could with the material he had but the result was something awful the chorister a very old man a hundred i should think played the harmonium which was as old as he was it groaned and wheezed and at times stopped altogether he started the cantique with a thin quavering voice which was then taken up by the school children particularly the boys who roared with juvenile patriotism and energy each time they repeated the last line pour notre drapeau pour notre patrie the sermon was very good short and simple it was preached by the doyen of newly a tall strong broad-shouldered man who would have seemed more at home in a dragoon's uniform than in the soutane but he knew his business well had a fine voice and very good delivery his peroration and appeal to the men to remember always that the flag was the symbol of obedience of loyalty of devotion to their country and their god was really very fine i almost expected to hear cheers the french are very emotional and respond instantly to any allusion to country or flag the uniform even the pompiers has an enormous prestige then came the benediction the flag held high over the kneeling congregation and the ceremony was ended we stopped a few moments after the service to let the procession pass out and also to thank the preacher and one or two cures who had assisted on the occasion they did not come to the van d'honneur we walked down to the marie where the mayor and his adjoint were waiting for us they conducted us to a large room upstairs where there was a table with champagne bottles glasses and a big brioche as soon as we had taken our places at the top of the room the pompiers in municipal council trooped in and francis made quite a pretty little speech it was the first time i had ever heard him speak in public he did it very well was not at all shy then there was a pause the mayor filled a glass of champagne handed it to me took one himself and we tranquilled solemnly still there seemed to be a little hitch no one else took any and there was an air of expectancy i made a sign to the schoolmaster who was also the adjoint and he explained to me in a low voice that he thought it would give great pleasure if i would shake hands and tranquille with all the pompiers so i asked to have all the glasses filled and made the round shaking hands with every one some of them were very shy could hardly make up their minds to put out their big rough hands some of the old ones were very talkative c'est moi qui suis jacques madame j'ai nettoyé la première fossile de monsieur francis 
another in a great hurry to get to me. C'est moi qui ai ramassé la première lièvre de Monsieur Francis, etc. I remember the première lièvre quite well. Francis carried it home himself and dashed into his father's study, swinging the poor beast by its long ears, the blood dripping from a hole in its neck. It was difficult to scold. The child was so enchanted. Even old Ferdinand did not grumble, but came to the rescue at once with brushes and savonnoir. The wine had loosened the tongues and made everyone more at ease. I asked that Hubert, our coachman, who had been in W's service for thirty-one years, should be invited to come up and have a glass of champagne. He knew everybody, having driven W about in his dog-cart all over the country. He was delighted to take part in the fete, and made his little speech, saying he had seen Monsieur Francis when he was only a few hours old, and that he had grown since, which joke was received with great applause. Then some of the young men went off with Francis to look at the automobile, a great novelty at that time. We went out and talked to the women who were waiting in the street. Everyone looked smiling and pleased to see us. The men all formed again in procession and escorted us to the end of the street, the whole village naturally following. They stopped at the foot of the hill, giving us a ringing cheer as we left. End of chapter 5, part 1 Recording by Florence